Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Supernatural George. I'm Mittens, and today we are going to be discussing Season 4, Episode 2, Are You There, God? It's me, Dean Winchester. Written by Sarah Gamble and Lou Bolo, and directed by Phil Segretia. Yes, Lou Bolo, our stunt coordinator for the first, like, 13 seasons of the show. But he still worked with the show, I believe, right until the end. In season four, he was given story credits on two episodes, and this is one of them. The other one being Wishful Thinking, uh, also written by Ben Edlund. But you actually have seen him because he's one of the few people who actually played himself in The French Mistake. So it's actually an interesting story, The Rising of the Witnesses. This is the episode where we begin to get a bigger picture of what season four is setting up. Yeah, Sam's using his demon powers and working with Ruby, and Heaven seems to want to work with Dean on the side of the angels, but even most of the players on the field have no idea that there is an even bigger game afoot, and they're all working toward the same end. Apocalypse! Fun. The angels think they're preventing it. Demons right now, as far as we know, don't really know what's going on. They're just doing the demon chaos thing, and Lilith is pushing out all the demons in one direction while Ruby is working her subterfuge with Sam and setting up everything that needs to happen in the season finale. But I don't think most of the demons on the ground know what the bigger plan is. They may be taking orders from Lilith, but I don't think that Lilith is actively involving any of them. Just like most of the angels have no idea what's really going on in on the heaven side of things. Like, Cass is pretty convinced he needs to stop the breaking of the seals, which we'll learn about in this episode. And yet, Heaven all along casually wants all these seals broken, because there is a much bigger picture. And we're going to find out about it very, very slowly in drips and drabs over the whole season. But looking back now in a rewatch, knowing the trick of the whole thing, it really puts all of it in perspective. So you can see all those locks being turned as we move through the season. Cass begins having doubts about the orders he's receiving pretty early. And I'd venture to say that he was already having unexpressed doubts in this episode. His line at the end about six angels dying in the field that week. Remember what the big conflict of 416 on the head of a pin ended up being? The fact that someone was murdering angels. And it turns out to be Uriel, who was supposed to be investigating the murder of these angels, but was actually the perpetrator because he was trying to convince angels to jump ship and join the side of Lucifer to support Lucifer. There's a lot of things when you know the rest of the season, you can look back and go, oh, wow, the seeds of that are planted this early. And we'll talk more about that when we get to On the Head of a Pin. But it's good to remember later season plot points like that in earlier episodes where you can wonder if that's what's already happening. Because for me, that adds a lot to the story and the general tight writing of season four. But this episode is primarily about the rising of the witnesses and our guys putting the information together and coming up with It's the Apocalypse. This is where they start leveling up fast. And I mean, already we get to look back at the previous seasons of the show and see just how far they've come. But knowing how far they have yet to go, it's kind of interesting to watch that progress. At the end of the last episode, Ruby offered Sam an out 
or at least she offered to step back a little bit while he settled things with Dean. But Sam said no. He wanted to keep working with her, working on his demon powers. And in this episode, Ruby sort of forces his hand and tells Sam that she has to back off and lay low for a while because the angel stuff freaks her out and scares her. And she just cannot be involved in that if Sam is going to stick with Dean. Because Sam says, you know, he trusts the angels. He, of course, why he doesn't, he's not afraid of angels. Angels are the good guys, right? Who will obviously be on our side. They will protect us and help us. Because unlike Dean, Sam buys into that old time religion. And this episode uses it to lay some pretty heavy guilt on Sam as well. They have to confront the witnesses that are ghosts of people they'd failed to save, hand-selected, branded, and then forced into seeking vengeance. And I'm not entirely sure why some of these specific ghosts were chosen. Like, Ron was more of a regret for Dean in a helpless situation made far worse by the way Sam tried to handle it. We talked about this when Night Shifter aired and how Sam dismissing him. Sam thought, he, oh yeah, of course he's a rational person. I can just bully him into staying away and belittle him into thinking that he's completely wrong as if that would work. Ron ended up dying because of it. But I don't think Sam actually experiences guilt for his death. Like, I'm not sure that Ron in any way could affect Sam. I mean, he probably could bring up some guilt for Dean, like, God, I wish I had said something different or stepped in and told Ron that he was on the right track, but we knew exactly what it was and how to get rid of it. And we were going to handle it and kept him in the loop at least. But no, Dean didn't even try. He took Sam's lead and yeah, he probably does feel a little guilt about that, but I don't think it's the kind of guilt that the witnesses were going for. And Victor, I'm mostly just bitter at Sarah Gamble for deciding that nope, he really was killed in Jusin Bello. After having said that there was a chance that he'd survived and escaped, what a seriously awful waste of a potentially incredible recurring character to just say, ah, no, I need a dead guy to come back and haunt them. So I'll just make it this one. Yes, Victor was one of the people who was killed there. That was one of Sam's motivations lumped in with all the other innocents who died in that episode for putting any sort of trust in Ruby at all now. And since Dean died, like the whole time that Dean was in hell, that was one of the pieces of guilt that motivated Sam to decide to work with her in the first place. So I can understand why that's there for that reason. And I don't think Dean is particularly guilty about Victor's death, just regretful again. A good man died just as he was learning the truth of the universe and could have been a great ally and probably an amazing hunter. So yeah, regret, but probably not guilt because everything Dean did actually saved Victor's life. It's really hard for me to see Dean feeling guilt about Victor's death. But for Sam, I think it's interesting that he chooses to confront Sam first because I'm not sure Sam actually feels guilt. But Dean doesn't believe he has any more right to have been saved and resurrected than Victor would. And in that sense, yeah, that probably adds some guilt on Dean. He's in why me mode in this episode quite a bit. But the kicker of the three ghosts for me is Meg. Not counting the two little girls who torment Bobby in the car trunk for a while. But (laughs) because we don't really know their backstory and 
or anything else about them. They're just two random girls to get Bobby out of the way for a little bit of the episode. But Meg, the girl Sam and Dean failed to save out of complete ignorance. Back when demons were terrifying and above their pay grade. She was the first big demon that they encountered. Not counting like Specky the Wonder Demon. But even here at the beginning of season four, they've already leveled up by leaps and bounds in how they deal with demons. Sure, the show has reinforced repeatedly the fact that the vast majority of possessed people don't survive the experience like Meg didn't. And that they tried to hammer this home last season. And I've said this multiple times now that 10 demons in a row they exercised and all 10 died. They, the people did not survive. Just last week, Sam was really disappointed that this one possessed woman did not survive. And he, like, genuinely upset. So he's been on this kick of being able to save most of these people by exorcisms. And that's just not true to their past experience. But this ghost in particular, right now, when Sam is deep in the belief that by using his demon powers, he's actually saving people... And therefore, it's worth it to use those powers and to trust in Ruby and to follow her plan, to have Meg, of all people, shaming him for working with Ruby now. And again, not revealing to us exactly what Sam is doing other than it's really shady just by her accusation. And that begins to chip away at Sam's doubts that he admitted to Ruby in the last episode. It doesn't shake him fully, obviously, but it's something because that moral quandary is going to be Sam's arc for this whole season. And then we have Cass and Dean's little chat at the end of the episode, which I think I'm going to hold off discussing until we get there, because it is a lot. (laughs) But we do have some good stuff from this episode. We've got the production draft script from Chris Gauthier, uh, who plays Ron, that he auctioned off to support the Indian Residential School Survivor Society last year or a couple years ago, but we made a contribution and got a copy of the script and anyone else who would like to also make a contribution since that was his goal in auctioning off these scripts. I will put a link in the post for this episode. There's a few interesting changes between this draft and the filmed version, but I think the most interesting is Cass and Dean's conversation at the end of the episode. It's almost as if they took out the lines about Cass talking about how he has faith that God exists, where Dean questions him about God. And yes, in the aired version, he is steadfast in his belief in God. But Dean doesn't get to ask that follow-up question, and Cass doesn't have to say, I have faith that God exists. Dean asks in the script, so you've seen him, you know God. And Cass has to say, I have faith. And I think not putting that line in here gives them a lot more flexibility in Cass's future storyline, where he comes to doubt his own faith. And we don't even find out that most angels have not seen God's face until Anna says it, like nine episodes from now. So it's like they were already planning on expanding Cass's story and giving him this arc of questioning his faith because that's a pretty big line to cut. It's a tiny little line that would have only taken a few seconds to say, but they cut it because they wanted to make him seem more absolute in his convictions and in his faith 
because he will come to question it and that will become his arc for this entire season. And the next time we see him, we're going to begin to see that he doesn't have all the answers. And I love that. And I'm not sure that would have worked if he was a more one-dimensional character who everything he did was based on faith. There would be no reason to test his beliefs and understanding of everything. I've got a bunch of links to other meta posts and things that I will share. But thank goodness my tag for this episode is substantially smaller (laughs) than last week's. So (laughs) back to a normal amount of extra bonus feature stuff. And that said... I think it's time to watch the then segment. Set to Lonely as the Night by Billy Squire. The episode starts with Dean saying, Look, Sam, we save a lot of people, but we just can't save them all. And it shows Sam and Dean each saving somebody. Dean from season one, episode three, and the little boy in the lake. And Sam from season one, episode nine, when he saves the two little kids in Home, And then they start showing people they couldn't save. They show a woman with her throat slashed. But then they show Meg being unpossessed by the demon right before she died. Ron Resnick getting shot in the bank. And then Victor Henriksen dying by Lilith's hand. A little recap of the end of season three with Dean getting killed, Lilith failing to hurt Sam. And then Dean crawling back out of his grave in the last episode. Little bit of random reunions, then fighting demons, and Sam exercising the demon out of the woman with his mind in the last episode. The reminder that Sam is working with Ruby. And then everything that happened in the barn, the lights exploding, Dean and Bobby looking pretty terrified, and Cass walking into their lives. And intercut among all the important scenes in the barn, Cass getting shot at, nothing happening, all the lights exploding as he walks in, him introducing himself to Dean and explaining that he's an angel of the Lord. Intercut in the middle of that is the shot from the beginning of the episode where Dean first looks at the handprint on his shoulder. Like, reminder, this is the dude who put it there. And the show wonders why I'm so obsessed with the handprint. Well, y'all kept throwing it at us, okay? and explaining that it was the connection of how Dean got out of hell because this angel put it there when he pulled Dean out. That's pretty damn dramatic. We get intercut some random fight scenes and driving scenes, and then it comes back and Dean asks Cass, why would an angel rescue me from hell? And Cass replies, because God commanded it, because we have work for you. And Dean is super deeply suspicious about this, as he should be. Very good boy, Dean. And then we cut to now. A woman sleeping on her sofa with a book entitled The Secret Teachings of All Ages. Looks like some sort of mysticism book, something a hunter would definitely be interested in reading. But all the power in her apartment, the lights, the television where the Three Stooges are sleeping on screen... Everything begins to flicker and fritz, and she wakes up. That is enough to trigger her spidey senses, and she breathes out a visible cold cloud. Like, oh yeah, we know what that means. Probably a ghost. She goes directly to her closet, parts all her clothes, and opens a secret panel in the wall that's filled with weapons. We're supposed to imagine she's a hunter. And she loads up a shotgun as her answering machine takes a message from Bobby, 
who's calling her in on something that's real big. So definitely she's a hunter now if Bobby's calling her. As she's patrolling her apartment and ignoring Bobby's call, a man appears. He's clearly a ghost. She looks at him and she's like, you. And she immediately runs for a bag of salt and begins pouring salt across the doorway to her bedroom, hoping that the ghost won't be able to cross it. She looks at the man who's rematerialized and tells him, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry. And she slowly backs up, but then she realizes there's another ghost that had materialized behind her. A woman in a white dress or nightgown, maybe it's a white nightgown, (laughs) who she sees and then screams and then grabs her. And then we cut to the title card. After the title card, we go to Bobby's, where Bobby's sitting at his desk, meticulously paging through a very old, illuminated volume, trying to find out what it could have been that pulled Dean out of hell and that they encountered in that barn. In the meantime, Sam is in the kitchen, arguing with Dean about what it was. Sam is all ready to believe instantly that Castiel is exactly what he said he was, an angel. And Dean's like, that's impossible. It can't be true. It's either some sort of superpowered demon or something, but it can't be an angel. Sam's like, what do you mean? It can't be a demon. It's immune to salt rounds and devil's traps and Ruby's knife. And Sam mentions that even Lilith is scared of Ruby's knife. But I'm betting that the knife wouldn't really do shit to Lilith. It maybe might sting a little bit like it did to Abaddon or it maybe might give her the little twitchies like it did to Alistair, who is also a white-eyed demon, and Ruby's knife did not kill him either. Remember that, folks? I don't think that the knife is actually going to scare Lilith, and I think all of Sam's arguments at this point, while, yes, are valid as far as they know, don't hold up over the course of canon because they will find exemptions to all of these rules in demons. Yeah, the demon knife will seriously hurt most demons, but we always have a few exceptions. And even devil's traps, like Ramiel will just walk right through a devil's trap. Dean argues back that if angels were real, don't you think some hunter somewhere ever would have seen one? because they have no records of a hunter ever encountering one, at least not from any of the hunters they've ever met. Obviously, we know that the men of letters have had dealings with the angels and that there have been a few random humans who had dealing with angels like Lily Sunder. They seem to be very few and far between. And since they don't have access to any of the men of letters records yet, I don't think any of them know that there were people who did have access to angels at some point. Those records are still sealed in the bunker as far as we know. So they're just going by the lore that they have. Dean has never talked to another hunter who saw an angel. So therefore, it cannot be an angel. And Sam turns around and points out, "Uh, Dean, you're the hunter who saw an angel just now. You're it. You're case study number one. While Sam is encouraging them to at least go with it as a working theory until they know for sure, Dean's like, yeah, for sure. We don't know for sure. We can't just accept that until we do have proof. And it's interesting that on the bulletin board behind Sam's head on Bobby's wall, one of the pieces of paper is an image of the cross that was used in season one, episode 12, Faith to Control the Reaper. 
just an interesting little callback to faith there when Sam is trying to encourage Dean to have faith that this was an angel. And Dean is like, "Uh uh-uh, not until I have concrete proof. And what I saw so far doesn't add up to concrete proof. Bobby interrupts their argument to call them over to come see what he's found. Bunch of biblical lore, pre-biblical lore, some of it's in cuneiform, which would have been handy if Bobby had been around in season eight when they're trying to decode the tablets. Bobby could have decoded their cuneiform, but uh, (laughs) apparently based on this. But yes, an angel can snatch somebody from hell. And Dean's like, okay, well, what else could what else could do it? As he's saying this, he's touching his shoulder because he's looking at a picture of an angel grabbing a man's shoulder in hell. The point of contact between his hand and the man's shoulder in the drawing is pretty much exactly what happened to Dean. His shoulder getting the handprint burned into it and he's unconsciously just touching it now. So yes, they're trying to tell us there is a connection here. Bobby's like, as far as I can tell, Nothing else could have brought you out of hell. Nothing but an angel. And Sam is all excited because, you know, he's Mr. Praise to Angels and wants to believe in angels and has this like childlike belief that they're the good guys and always has. He's trying to convince Dean that this is a good thing. The angels are the good guys. Dean doesn't want to accept that yet because he's like, so what does that mean? If there's angels, does that mean there's a god? Bobby's like, well, at this point, Vegas money's on, yeah. And Dean is just like, I don't know if I want to deal with that. And here's where Dean hits the wall and can't accept this. He's like, are we saying there's proof that there's a God out there who cares about me personally? And Sam's like, what's wrong with that? And Dean's like, why me? If there is a God, why would he give a crap about me? And he can't handle that. And I don't blame him. Sam tries to rationalize it as, well, you're just an ordinary guy who's important to God for some reason. We don't know why, but you were important enough for him to want resurrected. And Dean's like, well, that creeps me out. He says he doesn't even like being singled out at birthday parties, let alone by God. He has zero desire for this responsibility to be laid on him. You know, Sam has spent his life wanting him to be recognized as special or, you know, he's got his demon power abilities that he's always been ashamed of, but now he's finding a way to turn them to good, he thinks. So he feels okay about that. And he's like, yeah, I can use this power. It's a gift. And, you know, he feels like kind of singled out and special about himself. And he kind of has to, because otherwise we go back to where he was Am I going to just turn evil? Like, what's wrong with me? I must be evil. So it's a step up for Sam. But for Dean, he does not want this burden. He's never felt special or singled out in any way before. You know, he's like, I figure I've made up for all the awful things I've done by killing some monsters and saving a few people here and there. But like, this is not. No, I, I, I don't want this to be singled out like this. And honestly, that's one of the things that will save the universe in the end. So you keep up with that, Dean. So Dean finally is just like, okay, I guess I can't get out of this. What do we know about angels? Bobby drops a stack of books on his desk and tells Dean to start reading. Dean's just looks at Sam and's like, you're going to get me some pie. Grabs the top book and storms off. 
And Sam drives to the store, ostensibly to get pie, even is reminded of it on the phone as he pulls up to the place to get some pie. And he's like, when have I ever forgotten the pie? And apparently Dean says some something in response. And he's like, right, exactly. Listeners, he's going to forget the pie. He's going to be so distracted by what happens next. Dean will be deprived of his pie. Sam is hanging up with Dean. He spots Ruby sort of hiding behind the side of the store, peeking around at him, looking kind of scared. Ruby's first question is, is it true? Was Dean rescued by an angel? And Sam's like, "Uh, we're not sure, but we're starting to think so. Yes. And she's like, okay, bye, Sam, and starts to walk away. And he stops her. He's like, what what are you doing? And she's like, "Uh, they're angels. I'm a demon. I don't want to be anywhere near them because they smite first and ask questions later. They're not going to care if I'm helpful. They're just going to kill me. But she advises Sam to be wary, to watch himself. And Sam's like, I'm not scared of angels. And she just gives him a look like, eh, you maybe, should, maybe you should be, Sam. And then she walks away. Sam gets back to Singer Salvage, only to have Bobby and Dean there loading up Bobby's trunk. Bobby comes over and tells him to keep the engine running because they're going to go check on his friend, Olivia Lowry, who has not been answering her phone calls for the last three days. He's been trying to contact her about the angel thing. So it's only been three days since they found out about Cass and Dean came back. So maybe this is the 21st or 22nd or somewhere in that neighborhood of September. This is still brand new information to all of them. But Olivia is also the woman we saw attacked by ghosts in the cold open. Dean pushes Sam out of the driver's seat, climbs in, and Sam hands over the bag of stuff he bought at the grocery store. And Dean's like, dude, where's the pie? Sam forgot his pie. I mean, granted, Sam had bigger things on his mind, like angels and worry over Ruby leaving him. But dude, he made a joke about it. Like, when do I ever forget the pie? Dude, Sam, you always forget the pie. I mean, sometimes it's not your fault, Like that time you got swiped from the diner by demons at the end of season two (laughs) and then got yourself killed. So Dean had to sell his soul to hell. Yeah, this one's more on you than that. But you don't often remember the pie and it becomes a thing. They get to Olivia's and Bobby sees her on the ground, dead, horribly, and goes outside. Sam and Dean continue to investigate, quickly come to the conclusion that it was spirits but they'd never seen a spirit do this to a person before. She is just violently and graphically and horribly dead with her, you know, like a hole punched through her. Bobby comes back in shaken. He's like, I tried to call a couple hunters I know nearby. And Dean's like, good, we could use the help. And Bobby's like, they're not answering either. So it's the same thing attacking other hunters. The answering machine picks up at one of the other hunters' houses And it's Dean Winchester leaving a message as we see flashes of what's happened in this hunter's house. Same thing. He looks like he's fighting ghosts. He's got his salt shells all over the place. And he's lying on his kitchen floor with a giant hole torn in his chest. As Dean warns him that we think something's happening to hunters. Just be aware. Later that night, Sam and Dean arrive at his house. And as they're leaving... They're on the phone with Bobby, who's checked out the places of two other hunters, and they've both had the same attack. Bobby advises them to go back to his place till they figure out what on earth is attacking hunters. They has to stop at the save and gas, 
which I think may have become a subsidiary of the gas and sip eventually. Same color scheme, the blue sign with the yellow letters. But save and gas is uh, our first look at even something adjacent to a gas and sip. Dean's asleep in the passenger seat. Sam starts gassing up the Impala, goes inside the little shop to pay and use the bathroom. We see a tiny little shot of something watching him from a distance. As Sam's washing his hands in the bathroom sink, his breath fogs up and the mirror ices over. Sam reaches up and wipes the frost off the mirror and sees the reflection of Victor Henriksen standing behind him and startles because he's dead. He starts off with his standard, hi, Sam, it's been a while. And we see a little flashback montage of Victor and the times he said that to them in the past. Sam is shocked to see him. It's like, Henriksen, did you, did you, sur-? like, he's trying to ask if he survived. And then he glitches like a ghost. He's like, I didn't. But unlike the other hunters, Victor is actually engaging with Sam. The other ghosts that we saw attack Olivia in the opening scene. They didn't even talk to her. It was just like she was just overwhelmed with guilt and was like, I'm so sorry. And here, Sam's like, if I had known, we did, we had no idea that Lilith was going to still come after you. And Victor's like accusing him of having left him there to die without that information. Because Victor, according to this ghost, he blames Sam for his death as if he died in Sam's place when Sam had been Lilith's target. Obviously, that is not a fair assessment of the circumstance, but it's also completely unfair in Victor's eyes that he was subject to any of this. But as he grapples with Sam, we see a something on his hand, some sort of brand marked on his hand, something that might be compelling him to do this. But he does grapple with Sam. He doesn't just go right for that kill like the other hunters we've seen. Well, lucky for Sam, before Victor can decide to just get it over with already, Dean comes in and blasts him away with a salt round. Back at Bobby's, Bobby's lights start flashing and flickering. You hear, like, ghostly children's laughter, and his breath fogs over. And he grabs a fireplace poker and goes in search of whatever it is that's come to get him. And you kind of think he probably knows what it is just from the sound, that obviously this is a ghost that he will feel guilty about, but we have no idea who they are. Back in the car, Dean's driving as fast as he can back towards Bobby's, and Bobby's not answering his phone, and Dean's concerned about Sam's head injury. He got his head bashed in, and Dean's like, so Henriksen, what did he want? And Sam is already feeling guilty about this. He's like, revenge for getting him killed. And Dean's like, what are you talking We did not get him killed. Dean is still being rational about this. But of course, Sam, with what he's been doing, saving people with his demon powers, he's got to convince himself that that's, you know, this is all tied together with Ruby and the blame that she personally set up to be laid on Sam over Victor's death. But Sam is acting quite despondent over this new revelation of blame for Victor's death that's landed on him right now. And Dean's like, no, you will not do this. You're going to think in answers because I can't get in touch with Bobby and you are not gonna just sit here and wallow over that whatever's happened to all those other hunters is happening to us now and if you want to survive this you're gonna pull it together Sam back at Bobby's they enter both armed with their assault rifles 
they find Bobby's fireplace poker at the bottom of the stairs where he dropped it when the two little girls grabbed him up. He tells Sam, I'll go upstairs, look for him up there. You go outside, check the yard. As Sam goes through the yard, through the stacks of scrapped cars, we see the shadowy figure of one of the girls in one of the cars holding her hand over Bobby's mouth, keeping him from yelling out. It's like, boy, they've kept him alive and entrapped in this vehicle for a while now. It was dark when they took him, and now it's sunny out. So it's been at least several hours, and they haven't killed him. They're just playing with him. Meanwhile, upstairs in Bobby's, Dean, of course, is not finding him. All the doors suddenly slam along the upstairs hallway, except for one that opens wide. As he walks toward it, his breath fogs, and behind him we see Meg materialize. Not the demon, the girl. But for the very first time, Meg, the girl, gets to tell her side of the story. Dean had never really considered this before. I mean, he did once he realized that she was a possessed person with a demon riding her. But what Meg is trying to lay on Dean here is stuff that Dean didn't do to her. Dean didn't possess her. He tried to save her once he knew, but he didn't know. And it's like, I'm glad she gets to tell her story about what it was like to be possessed and the fact that she remembered a lot of it, the demon killing people with her body while she was a prisoner inside of her own head. But she's just furious. She's like, why? You're supposed to help people, Dean. Why didn't you help me? And she punches him when he tries to say he was sorry. And he is sorry. There was nothing he could have done to help her. He did the one thing he could and freed her. (laughs) And even though she died as a result, it's like, I think if it hadn't been for the rising of the witnesses spell that's driving her to this, I don't think any of these ghosts would have these feelings towards the Winchesters. It's just laying some bonus guilt on them for nothing. She tells Dean that, yeah, there's no excuse. You just charged in, didn't care that there was an innocent girl in here, just attacked. She's like, you think you're some kind of hero? And he's like, I don't. And we know that. He really doesn't. He does not want to be singled out by God. He's nothing special. He's not even convinced the good things he's done and the people he's saved outweighs the bad things he's done in life. He's pretty sure they don't. That was the conflict of the beginning of the episode. But as she's grabbing him, we see the same mark from Victor's hand on her hand. So Dean has now gotten a real good look at this. Dean tells her that he did the best he could at the time. Like, he he did. He did the best he could. And she does not accept that. She just drops him and starts kicking him. Outside, the little girls are accusing Bobby of letting the monster kill them. He was right outside. How did he not stop the monster from killing them? But Sam is now close enough to where the ghosts are that his breath is fogging up outside. And he realizes, oh shit, they're nearby. So as Sam is frantically prying open old car trunks, trying to find Bobby, they're telling him, ah, yeah, they're not going to find you, just like you didn't find us in time. And you're like holding his their hands over his mouth and nose so he can't breathe. Meanwhile, Sam is just becoming more frantic in his search. Back to Meg attacking Dean. She's telling Dean that it wasn't just me. It was my sister, too, who lost her way after I disappeared 
And then when she finally saw my broken body in the morgue, she killed herself. So Meg blames Dean not only for her own death, but for her sister's death, which Dean didn't even know she had a sister. Like, (laughs) this is so far beyond what Dean could have possibly known, but that he does know now. They do know that demons possess people now. I mean, it doesn't really change the results or the outcomes most of the time. Most of the time, even if they do carefully exercise somebody or try to save them, they die anyway. It's not Dean's fault for not being able to save them from the evil done by demons. It's not like Dean summoned the demon and forced it into you. You know, he's doing the best he can. And if nothing else, he's putting people out of their misery so they don't have to continue to live in that horrible state of having a demon control your body while you're still in there stuck, helpless and watching. She tells Dean that he'd been so obsessed with his own family and his own revenge and his own demons that he didn't even stop to think about her at all. And that 50 words of Latin a little sooner could have saved her life. And he's like, yeah, you're right. I didn't know you were possessed by a demon. I thought you were the demon. They had no idea when they first met her. Even when she went out the window, they just thought she was some sort of witch or someone working with the demon. They didn't even realize she wasn't a human. They thought she was dead after she went out the window. So they really couldn't have done anything to save her unless they walked into that, like the first time Sam met her way back in Scarecrow, they exercised her. But they had no idea she was even anything other than just some random girl back then. So really, really, when could any of that have happened? And Yeah, Dean says he accepts blame for that. Back outside in the scrapyard, Sam finally spots a side mirror on a car frosting over and realizes that must be where Bobby is. Prize open the back doors of this van and the ghost girls fling Sam onto another car and come to attack him, but he swipes at them with a something iron and dissipates it. And Bobby sits up with his crowbar and dissipates the other. Back upstairs, Dean is sort of crawling along the floor, dragging himself into the one of the rooms upstairs. Meg is just kind of like watching him suffer and kind of enjoying it. He keeps crawling and she keeps following. She laughs when he pulls out a guns like, you can't shoot me with bullets. And Dean is just like, I'm not shooting you. And he shoots up at an iron chandelier in the ceiling and it falls to the floor and dissipates her. But for some reason, the spirits don't immediately come back like we saw the other hunters, or at least Olivia's ghost, came right back after she dissipated him. No, they're giving Sam, Dean, and Bobby a chance to regroup here and go through the lore and reload their weapons and prepare for the next onslaught. Dean points out that, yes, they're here for revenge because we failed to save them and describes the mark he saw on Meg's hand. And Sam's like, yeah, I saw a mark like that on Victor's hand, too. Sam sketches it up real quick, and Bobby's like, I think I may have seen this before, and goes to grab a book on it. They hear something moving around the house, and they're like, "Uh, yeah, we got to get out of here. He just starts handing over books, grabbing up everything they can, and making a run for his basement, where we are first introduced to his panic room. From the iron door and salt-covered iron walls, all the rations, all the weapons. He's got a little table with a ham radio set up on it, cot, 
So the three of them are down there. Dean's working on filling more salt shells. Bobby's researching. Dean launches into, yeah, this is why I can't get behind God. Because with no God, bad crap happens to good people. There's no rhyme or reason to it. It's just the way it is. And you don't have to try and explain it or defend it. It just is what it is. But if God is out there, then what's wrong with him? Why does he let this awful stuff happen and do nothing to stop it and just let people suffer for nothing when God should be able to fix it? He should be able to answer prayers. He should be able to make life nice. Why does he allow evil to exist? That becomes one of the big questions of the entire series. What on earth is wrong with God? Turns out he's just a narcissistic jerk. So Dean's really not that far off here. Why isn't he helping? Why doesn't he make anything better? Why is he just trying to make everything worse? Why does he let it get worse? You know, Dean at this point isn't even crediting God with actively being the one to make things worse, even though all of this is God's plan. Good thing Dean has this attitude, because it does save their skin more often than not. Bobby has found the book with the information about the rising of the witnesses, that they did not die natural deaths, but they were also forced to rise by someone who cast this spell that rose them. And it was so powerful, it left a mark, a brand on their souls, and it's forcing them to behave like this. It's not their fault. They're like rabid dogs. And that's very important that they don't blame these ghosts or take what they're saying to heart, that this has been forced on them just as much as the ghosts are being forced on Sam, Dean, and Bobby now. The ghosts don't want this, but this brand on their souls, the mark of the witnesses on their hands that we saw in an episode where we deal with Dean and his handprint on his skin, but that's a mark on his soul. And that concept will come up throughout the series of creatures in general, because other creatures can do it besides angels, leaving a mark on the soul that is visible somehow. In season six, when Balthasar is making deals for souls and Cass is able to detect it by reaching into that child's soul, or even like a Cupid's mark, that we know that cupids leave on people's hearts. It's not on their skin, per se, but deep inside of them, there's a physical mark associated with it and a mark to the soul. And especially knowing how that bodies and souls are separate things that can still just continue right along without each other attached that we'll learn in season six. It seems kind of interesting that that brand kind of seals Dean's soul into his body, maybe, in some way. That's one way you could look at what the handprint symbolizes, that like that's where that got locked in there, because we'll see other marks on skin that are a lock, specifically like the mark of Cain, that's a lock that gets opened and lets out the darkness, but it was on Dean carrying it. So like there's all kinds of symbolism that's sort of vaguely interconnected throughout canon, but it makes you kind of have to see it as a mark on the soul as well as the body. And that there is some deeper connection here. And yes, every time I see the handprint, I'll probably deviate and make some sort of commentary about it. So, you know, just get used to it. <laughs> the rising of the witnesses, Bobby tells them. 
is an ancient prophecy. And Dean gets up like, uh, what book is that prophecy from? And Bobby's like, uh, the widely distributed versions just for tourists. But Revelation. And yes, he says Revelations. But yeah, in their universe, maybe the book is actually called Revelations, plural. But no, in our universe, it's Revelation, singular. <laughs> so I actually have to force myself to remember, no, I can say revelations because this is a work of fiction and it takes place in an alternate universe from the one I live in. And maybe in their universe, the book is actually called revelations. So our occasional reminder that yes, the supernatural universe can make up its own rules. It's not wrong and it doesn't have to abide by our rules, but sometimes we just have to sigh and roll our eyes at it. Just like we did with Sam Hain. We haven't gotten to Sam Hain yet in this series. So, hey, spoiler alert. I'm going to be pissed off about that too. (laughs) But for now, Bobby's informing them of just how big a deal this is. This is a sign of the apocalypse. And this is a shot where we get a subtle Phil Segresha zoom on Sam and Dean as they absorb this information. But if it had been a Bob Singer directed episode, you know, you would have gotten drama zoom instead. Dean tries to clarify like the actual apocalypse with four horsemen and pestilence and $5 a gallon gas apocalypse. And it's like, oh dear, Dean, you better stay out of the year 2022, I guess. (laughs) He'd be shocked what gas is now. Dean immediately takes the information that they are watching the apocalypse go down. And he's like, great road trip. We're going to just hit the Grand Canyon, the bunny ranch. He's like, okay, world's going to end. Let's live it up. Bobby's like, well, first we've got to survive the rising of the witnesses outside who are waiting to kill us. Unless you plan on spending the rest of your short, miserable life locked in this room. (laughs) We got to get past them. Bobby's got a spell that will put the witnesses back to rest and he should have all the ingredients they need to make it in the house. And Dean's like, any chance they're in this room? Bobby's like, what, you thought our luck was going to start now? Like, (laughs) no. And the spell has to be cast over an open fire. So they're going to use the fireplace in the library. Dean's just like, it's not as appealing as this ghost proof bunker that we're trapped in here. Yeah, I feel you, Dean, but they've got to get all those spell ingredients. So they each arm up, get as ready as they possibly can for whatever they're going to face once they open that door. And they've each got their little assignments to go take care of while Bobby begins to get the spell ready. As they creep toward the stairs, everybody on high alert covering each other. Dean looks up to the top of the stairs and sees Ronald Resnick sitting there blocking their way. He asks Dean if he remembers him, and we see a bunch of flashbacks to Night Shifter. And Dean's like, Ronald, with the laser eyes. And he's like, I wish I could say it was good to see you, but Ron just stands up and he's like, I'm dead because of you. And he just becomes enraged. He's like, you were supposed to help me. And then Bobby just shoots Ronald. He's a ghost. They're not going to end up hugging it out and having good feelings with these ghosts who are being forced here against their will to behave in this specific way. Bobby's like, if you're going to shoot, shoot, don't talk. So proof Bobby's seen the good, the bad, and the ugly, I guess. As soon as Ron's out of their way, though, they all rush upstairs and spring into action. Sam sets up a salt circle around the fireplace and desk. Dean begins building up the fire. Bobby starts assembling ingredients for the spell. 
he gives orders for to get something from the upstairs linen closet. As soon as Sam runs upstairs, the little girls appear at the edge of the salt circle and try and distract Bobby. But Dean stands up and shoots them and they disappear. Bobby then gives Dean orders to go into the kitchen. In the cutlery drawer under the false bottom, he needs hemlock, opium, and wormwood. That's a wild collection of poisonous things to keep in your cutlery drawer. Bobby's trying to focus and draw the spell he needs on his desk. And the girls come back and are tormenting him and taunting him yet again. They're like, you could have saved us. And Bobby's got to be thinking, yeah, well, I'm trying to save you now from this. Just as Sam finds the box Bobby ordered him to get, Meg reappears to let Sam know what really pisses her off. Meg tells him, you saw how I suffered for months. I thought I died for something. She thought that Sam would have learned something from her death. But what he's doing with Ruby... How can he justify that? Meg asks, how many innocent bodies has Ruby burned through for kicks? And I mean, one so far that we know of in canon. I mean, technically it was Lilith who last possessed her, but that was a body that would not have survived either way. Who knows how old Ruby was? Like five or six hundred years a demon, maybe? How many bodies has she gone through in that time? How many people has she just used up and spat out in that time? Like any demon. And that's significant because we know from the future, but Sam already knows that the body that Ruby is in currently was vacant. And that was at his insistence that she not take a living being with a soul attached. She specifically found a body that did not have that baggage attached. So yeah, Sam did learn something from her, even though he's not doing as Meg would ask of him here to send her back to hell, like all demons should be sent back to hell kind of mindset she's got going here. But she calls him a monster. And then Sam gets this really awful look on his face and just blows her away. Like, you're going to call me a monster when I'm saving people? I'm using Ruby's help To save people? You don't know how many people I've saved, lady. It doesn't quite hit the right way. But also, it does cast doubt on what he's doing. And he doesn't want to hear that. It's a very complex mix of feelings here for poor Sam. As Dean's trying to get the ingredients from the cutlery drawer, the door slams behind him. And Bobby asks if he's okay. And Dean's like, yeah, I'm I'm getting it. I'm, I'm on my way. And Victor shows up. And I think Victor's kind of surprised that Dean immediately agrees. Yeah, it's my fault you're dead. Dean's just expressing his guilt right at Victor. He's like, the minute I heard about that explosion, I thought I should have known. Why didn't I warn you? But it was semi a ruse for him trying to grab an iron frying pan from the stove. But Victor sends that flying across the room. He's like, "Uh uh-uh, you're not going to get me that easy. Victor tells Dean, oh, you thought we died in some beautiful blast of light? No, it took over 45 minutes for Lilith to have her fun with us. And she did terrible things to everybody, tortured them. Victor shoots his hand out and reaches into Dean's chest. And he's like, tell me how it's fair that you get saved from hell and I die. How is this fair? And Dean's like, it's not fair. I agree with you. And Dean was just standing there and 
Victor was just going to pull his heart right out of his chest, except Sam came in and blew him away with a salt shell. And Dean just falls to the floor and he's like, yeah, no, no, I'm not okay. But they've got the ingredients now and they rush in to where Bobby has got everything else set up. Dean once again smiles when Ron appears. He's like, come on, we were pals. And Ron's like, yeah, when we were alive, but now I'm going to kill you. Just as Bobby starts doing the spell, all the windows blow open, blow the salt away, threaten to blow the spell pages away. Bobby's barely holding on to everything. And it basically turns into whack-a-mole shooting gallery as Sam and Dean are left fending off these spirits as Bobby rushes to finish the spell. Victor flings Dean's gun away again, and Dean has to reach for an iron poker again. And then it's hand-to-hand combat with these guys. Meg shows up, flings a desk into Sam, pinning him to the wall, and he's like, cover Bobby. The little girl goes, start climbing over the desk, trying to attack Sam. Dean just has to stand there and be Bobby's last line of defense. Just as he's about to complete the spell, Dean hears Bobby scream, and he turns around to see Meg with her hand inside Bobby's chest. Just as he finishes chanting the spell, though, he drops the bowl, calls Dean's name, and says, Fireplace. And Dean catches the bowl before it hits the floor, slides across the room, and kind of throws it into the fireplace, activating the spell and saving them all. Before we get into the final act of the show, I need to stop and say that the Super Wiki mentions that this may have been a dream, like Cass visited Dean in his dream, but I'd never even thought that that was what was happening until I read it on the Super Wiki. Like, I always thought this was really happening in reality, that Dean woke up during the night and Cass was just there because you even hear the wing flap noise of his arrival. I sincerely do not believe that this is a dream or that Cass is visiting Dean inside his head. I believe he's visiting Dean inside Bobby's kitchen. So I just clearing that up. Dean hears that flapping noise that will become synonymous with angels arriving and departing. And he wakes up. He's sleeping on the floor. We just saw Sam sleeping on the couch as well. But We know that Cass has the ability to put people to sleep with a touch. If he doesn't want Sam to wake up, I don't think Sam would wake up. Dean rolls over and sees Cass standing in the kitchen, silhouetted with the window behind him, glances at Sam, finds him completely out cold still, and gets up. I don't have any actual questions about this, but why frame this shot of Dean walking into the kitchen, showing Cass perfectly silhouetted between his legs? I just thank you, Phil Segresha, for that shot. That's an awesome shot. But why? Like, what was the intent here? It's a really cool shot, though. So thank you. Thank you. But the first words out of Cass's mouth are, excellent job with the witnesses. And Dean is upset by this. He's like, wait, you knew about this? And we get a little info dump on a lot more stuff that Dean probably doesn't want to know. Cass replies that he didn't know about it, but he was made aware, meaning he probably was made aware right before he showed up here to congratulate Dean on his dealing with the witnesses. Dean's very upset about this. He's like, you know, I could have got my heart ripped out of my chest. It almost happened. And Cass is like, yeah, but it didn't. Dean complains that the angels in general aren't living up to his expectations, that they were guardians and good guys, not dicks. 
And Cass is just like, read the Bible. Angels are warriors. And Dean's like, yeah, then why didn't you fight? Why'd you just leave this one to us? Cass tells him there were many other battles being fought at the same time. That Dean's problems aren't the only problems. Dean spent the episode sorting through his feelings about God. And if he exists, he's a total jerk. Dean chooses this moment to unload those feelings onto Cass, expressing those same sentiments. As Dean's going through his litany of complaint, Cass interrupts with the Lord works and and Dean's like, if you say mysterious ways, so help me, I will kick your ass. And that's why I made that phrase my tag for God in this show. So if you ever need to go to my blog and find something about Chuck, it's in that tag, just word for word that phrase. If you say mysterious ways, so help me, I will kick your ass. Cass just shrugs at that, and Dean blinks and is like, whoa, did I just actually threaten an angel to his face? Holy crap, okay, maybe I'm a little bit insane or tired or something or just dumb. I don't know. (laughs) He can't believe himself, but this angel is mildly amused. He gives the closest thing Dean's seen to a smile out of him yet. And after he regroups, Dean's like, okay, time to get information. Bobby was right about the witnesses. This is the beginning of the apocalypse, right? And Cass confirms that, yes, that's why we're here. And Dean's like, do I want to know? And Cass is like, I sincerely doubt it, but unfortunately you need to. So listen up. Cass goes on to describe the 66 seals, which are being broken by Lilith. And Dean's like, okay, so I guess that's not a show at SeaWorld. No, no, Dean, it's not. Cass confirms that it was Lilith who did the spell to raise the witnesses, but also tells Dean, yeah, and not just here, 20 other hunters died. Dean's like, well, it shouldn't matter because we put all the witnesses back to rest and Cass is like, the seal was broken anyway. Cass describes the seals as locks on a door, and the last one opens, Lucifer walks free. That is astounding news to Dean, who's having enough trouble coming to terms with the fact that angels are real, that God is real, and now he's got to believe Lucifer is real too. Well, I mean, it goes, it follows. If one's real, all the rest are. If you remember, Dean has had a couple conversations with demons over the years where they have talked about Lucifer and demons thought of Lucifer like their god. So even though they may not have a personal relationship with him, they do believe he exists because they have faith in their weird demonic creator. But when Dean objects to Lucifer being real, Cass is like, well, three days ago, you didn't think I was real. Cass expresses that this is the first time in 2,000 years that angels have walked among you, though. Why do you think we are here? This is big. And Dean replies, yeah, to stop Lucifer. That's why you're here. And Cass just gives a little nod. So at this point, Cass truly does believe that that is their mission to stop Lucifer from ever rising again. That's the only reason Cass is so devoted to following his orders. He believes that he is following a righteous path that will lead to the apocalypse stopping, not as Dean and Sam and everybody else is being strung along into starting it. And Dean still taunts Cass about, oh yeah, stellar job with the witnesses. 
Cass is like, yeah, we lost this one, but there's going to be more battles. Some will win, some will lose. And Dean is unimpressed with this. To Dean, at this point, he's just like, Angel should be able to fix this instantly. This should not even be an issue that's on my pay grade to fix, but yet here I am fighting for it. Cass gets right up in his face and he's like, our numbers are not infinite. I lost six brothers in the field this week. It's not just you that's you know, fighting this battle. He asks very quietly, like, do you think the armies of heaven should follow you around? There's a bigger picture here. You should show me some respect. I dragged you out of hell. I can throw you back in. And that shuts Dean up, at least. And that's the last Cass has to say. And he just disappears. And we see Dean standing alone at the counter. The next morning, he wakes with a start and he's back in his bed. So was that all a dream or? Nah, I prefer to think that he actually got up and was in the kitchen and just went back to sleep and maybe dreamt about the experience again. Who knows? I still prefer to believe that that really did happen. But Sam is awake and walking around and Dean sits up and Sam asks if everything's okay because Dean is looking a little shaken. Dean's like, uh, so you got no problem believing in God or angels? And Sam's like, uh, not really. And Dean's like, uh, so I guess that means you believe in the devil. And Sam's like, why are you asking me all this? And Dean just shakes his head because like, how do you even begin this conversation? The devil's real. And he's trying to escape hell, and that's what Lilith's big plan is. And Dean has been conveniently fed this information at the beginning of the season to ponder and mull over and line them up in this plan to stop Lilith from releasing the devil. Like, all of that information has now been laid down, that that's the endgame goal of Lilith, that she's going to unlock these 66 seals with the specific purpose of raising Lucifer. And we've got to stop her from finishing that. But we don't know how to attack her or kill her. You know, we don't know where she is or what she's going to do next. And we also have to stop these seals from breaking any way we can. And maybe killing Lilith is our best goal to stop her from breaking the seals. If we kill her, she can't break any more seals. But they don't know that that's the whole plan. They spend the whole season leading them on a wild goose chase of seal breaking right to Lilith's doorstep when she's ready for them to come and break that final seal. But now we also have a baseline for Cass. He believes in Heaven's mission. He believes in his orders. He believes that after 2,000 years of not walking the earth, angels have a purpose to be on earth again, to walk among humanity, to stop the apocalypse. And he firmly believes that because why wouldn't he? It seems like a reasonable order to him at this point, but he is already beginning to appreciate or admire Dean just a little bit. Who else stands up to an angel, doesn't believe he deserves to be saved, told Victor, his ghost, yeah, you're right. You're 100% right. I don't deserve this. I don't deserve to have been saved from hell while you died. It's unfair. He agrees. Not in any sort of like boo-hoo, woe is me way, but just in a, yeah, when you do this math, that's how it adds up. And that's the total here. Like, I agree with you. 
And yeah, Cass was right last week. Dean does not feel he deserves to be saved. Why me? Why bring me back just for this bullshit? Why am I the center of this drama? I don't want to be here and do this. Fix your shit, God, angels, heaven. I don't want any part of any of that. And honestly, that is the the smartest attitude to take in this entire show. I don't want any part of this. I will do what I have to do. I will do my best to save people. But honestly, at the end of the day, this is so far above my pay grade. And oh my goodness, it's going to look piddly pants to Dean in a few years. But really, this is Chuck's story. This is his bullshit. And he's having fun watching Dean squirm under his thumb like this. Because the whole goal of this season is to shape Dean up, to bring him in line, just like Sam was brought in line to bend to Ruby's will. Dean was supposed to snap into shape and be ready on the spot to say yes when it's asked of him, because that's what the endgame goal is. And Dean is not. He's not. It takes a lot more breaking than that to get Dean to that point. And unfortunately, the angels just don't have that kind of patience. (laughs) I guess fortunately, because, you know, I like Dean and I don't want that for him. So anyway, but yeah, this becomes the beginning of Cass's arc, too, with regards to heaven. And it's not just about him discovering free will. It's about him really understanding what it means to be human through Dean. And I'm so excited for him. (laughs) poor thing he's just so entirely clueless about what it means to be human and to have free will and to not have these cosmic orders that he must obey and what it means to know what's right and what's wrong and to be able to choose how to act for himself it's just brilliant and beautiful and I cannot wait to watch it unfold and will be to watch it unfold just a wee bit begin to see some of those little cracks in Cass so after this statement in the kitchen here standing right up to Dean getting right in his face I dragged you out of hell I can throw you back in next week we will begin to see him show a little doubt we'll begin to see that there's things that he doesn't know and he's trying to fill in gaps and he's trying to understand the bigger picture And the more he sees of it, the more he's suspicious of it, just like Dean is. Dean didn't need to see any facets of it at all to be completely 100% suspicious of it. But Cass, yeah, he's been living with this responsibility and these orders and the natural order of heaven as he understands it for millennia, eons, billions of years, kind of does tick me off when people refer to Cass's age as being millennia or just thousands of years. Like, no, because the first fish crawled out of the ocean like 3.6 to 4.2 million years ago, somewhere in that range. So Cass is at least that old. (laughs) Probably way older. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. But yeah, when you've when you've lived with something and an understanding of the natural world as it is for that long, it's not his natural instinct to question it or reject it or think it's somehow suspect. It's a process, but it's a, an amazingly rapid process, all things considered, that Cass goes from 
rigid order follower of the Lord to we're making it up as we go in 22 episodes. And I can't wait for it to happen. Oh, yes. But yes, starts next week. Season four, episode three, In the Beginning, which I'm really interested to rewatch again with the Winchesters coming out soon or at least having been picked up to series, we will eventually see the Winchesters. So refreshing myself on all of the episodes where they flash back to the past, kind of on point. Anyway, until then, you can find me on Tumblr and Twitter at MittensMorgul or at SPNGeorge. You can find me on Discord at Mittens hashtag 4865 Or you can email me at mittensmorgul at gmail.com. And I look forward to talking to everybody again soon. I am so far ahead now of where the aired versions of my podcast are that I don't even remember (laughs) where I am or what I'm doing. So hopefully I'm not coming off too flaky in these. Uh, But (laughs) trying to get ahead before I have to go out of town for two weeks is kind of nonsensical. So... Anyway, remind me never to do that again. (laughs) I like doing these the same week I drop them anyway. So, yeah, this has been a lot. (laughs) I'm over-podcasted. I still got one more to do. Heck. (laughs) Watch. (laughs) I'll I'll just zip right through that one. I'll probably just take a lot of notes and just yammer real fast. I don't know. (laughs) So, yeah, one more week of me being disjointed, weird, and kind of frazzled. And then back to regular disjointed, weird, and frazzled me. <laughs> I really am exhausted. So, yeah. Anyway. <laughs> Have a good one, everyone. <laughs>